For this evening's study in scripture, we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's a chapter that's uh, difficult to divide neatly, but we will consider verses 1 through 14 this evening. Uh, It's the same division the ESV is using in your section headings, if you've got that translation of the Bible. Let's give attention to God's word. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So far, our reading for tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, When we read your word and perceive the great gift that it is and the spiritual power that it contains, we feel as though we are standing on holy ground. Lord, we pray the moment would not be lost on us, that the benefit would not pass us by of hearing a word from the living God, our covenant God, even the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Lord, Please stop us in our tracks. Please open our hearts. Make us ready to hear what you will say. And be honored in our study. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we read tonight is chock full of obedience language. Over and over, um, if you're curious afterward, it's highlighted in yellow up here, but over and over we get listen and teach and statutes and rules and commandments and obey. Over and over we hear that God has these commandments given through Moses, and yet for all the times we hear about them, dozens of words like that in these 14 verses, we're not told what the commandments are. We're not given those commandments yet. Actually, those commandments are coming in chapter 5. And if it seems curious to you that we keep being told, obey commandments, obey commandments, obey commandments, and not yet told the commandments, remember the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, the whole thing is pieced together to resemble a covenant treaty, the kind of thing that uh, was a treaty between kingdoms in the ancient world. And in that treaty form, we have been studying in recent weeks the so-called historical prologue, right? The backstory to the treaty. How did we get here? What's the relationship been like? Why does the suzerain, the sovereign, why does he have the right to expect your loyalty? What's he given you? What's he put up with from you? We've been going through a brief version of Israel's history in the wilderness, in other words. And the actual commandments, the actual law section of Deuteronomy, the so-called stipulations of the treaty, are going to be chapters 5 through 26. So what we're doing is we're transitioning from all of the historical reminders, we're transitioning into the commandments themselves, starting in chapter 5, into a new section of the treaty, so to speak. But also keep in mind that Deuteronomy, though the whole thing resembles a treaty, still within Deuteronomy there are actual sermons that Moses preached. I mean, if you're using a modern translation, the quotation marks started back in chapter 1, verse 6, and they're still going. Moses is still speaking. This is all something he said on a particular occasion to his fellow Israelites, and that he later wrote down what he said to them. And as often happens in sermons, you get some of the factual information, some of the reminders up front, but then it builds up towards exhortation and application, right? The, the so what, and, and that's why our passage begins, and now, O Israel, it's a look backwards. Uh, we've traced our steps through the wilderness up here to the brink of Jordan. We've seen so much these last three chapters, and now, O Israel. There's still going to be history within chapter 4. We're going to have references to Baal Peor. We'll talk about that. References to Mount Sinai. References to the deliverance from Egypt. But in this chapter, history is starting to transition into theology so we can transition from theology into obedience. Actual commands themselves in chapter 5. So this chapter sounds the way it sounds because it is concluding the Sermon of Moses that contains that historical prologue and because it anticipates the giving of the commands themselves starting in Deuteronomy 5. We're getting ready to obey commandments. Let me try to summarize the portion of scripture we've read tonight under three exhortations. First, people of God, obey his commandments because they'll save your life. That's verses 1 through 4. 
Second, people of God obey his commandments because they're a privilege. That's verses 5 through 8. And third, people of God obey his commandments because they are his. Verses 9 through 14. So people of God obey his commandments, even though we're not talking a lot yet about what those commandments are. Be prepared to obey his commandments because those commandments will save your life. Moses begins, and now, O Israel, in light of these things, as Paul might say, in view of the mercies of God, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you to do them, that you may live. That you may live, not just uh, have an alive feeling, but that you might actually survive as opposed to perish in the land you are being given on the other side of Jordan. Moses will say in the middle of this chapter, you're going in to take it, you will live there, but I am going to die here. And so because they won't have Moses with them, they need to know what it is that will keep them on the straight and narrow, keep them safe, keep them alive in the land of Canaan. Verse 4, you can see we're still talking about it after the mention of Baal Peor, you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive this day. Now, something I want to clarify is Moses starts saying, obey the commandments, obey the commandments, obey the commandments, and one of the reasons is it'll keep you alive. I want to make clear that obeying the commandments doesn't earn you life or any other gift from God, of course. You don't suddenly become deserving and worthy and able to cash in a bill. This is important, and and that attitude towards the commandments of God is something Paul has to correct, even refute, as he presents the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Right? In Galatians, he goes after this idea that if you do them, you will live in the sense of obedience earns you life. He says in Galatians 3, verse 12, the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. He's making a contrast there. We want to live by faith, not by law. And he says a little further on in Galatians 3, the law has no power to justify us. The law has no power to transform us. The law can't give you life. Listen to Galatians 3.21. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If God could have just given you a few more commandments and said, try harder, and that'll secure you life and earn you life, then he would have done that. He wouldn't have needed to send his son as an atonement. But understand that Paul is not contradicting Moses here. Paul is talking about being given spiritual life, right? And the law can't do that. No amount of commandments, either as words on a page or as strivings of your life, no amount of obedience can take a spiritually dead person and make them alive, can bring them from mortality into eternity. The law can't do that. Rather, what Moses is talking about is keeping you alive in terms of avoiding danger and discipline. If you keep the commandments of God, you will be preserved from some of what's waiting for you over there in Canaan. Some of the danger, some of the temptation, and most fearful of all, the disciplinary acts of God if you corrupt yourselves. The discipline of God could itself be a very deadly thing. And so Paul is talking about how do you gain spiritual life? Well, it's by faith in Jesus Christ, your righteousness. 
Whereas Moses is saying, how do you keep yourself out of deadly trouble here in this life? And that is, obey the law. They're not contradicting each other at all. And then Moses reinforces the point about staying alive by referencing Baal of Peor. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, verse 3. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. Now, this is, uh, this is not treated at length in the earlier chapters of historical prologue. But if you've read the book of Numbers, you know what Moses is referring to here. It's actually a tragedy, a disaster that happened right where they're camped now in the so-called plains of Moab, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, at the northern end of the Dead Sea. Um, up the ridge that overlooks the, the Dead Sea and the, the Jordan Valley, the Rift Valley down there, uh, there's that, that high range uh, of cliffs uh, that goes all the way down from the, from the Red Sea down south, all the way up through the land of Israel and Jordan. And we've noted that before as we've recounted the wilderness wanderings. But you might also recall that those high red cliffs, those bluffs that overlook that valley, the Arabah in the south and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, that within that set of cliffs there was a particularly high sort of ridge. And within that ridge you get Mount Nebo where Moses will view the promised land from. And somewhere in the same neighborhood, the exact location is debated, but possibly just on the other side of one of these deep wadis where streams flow into the Dead Sea, was another mountain called Peor. So this ridge has a, a you know, Pisgah, maybe it's the Pisgah Ridge, but it has Mount Nebo, and it's got Peor, a sort of defining height in the landscape there. They are camped here beneath Peor, we will find later on. That is to say, in front of this high points on the ridge. And as so often happened in Canaanite fertility religion, they assigned a Baal to Peor. So it was sometimes called Beth Peor, the the house of Peor. But sometimes this location was called Baal Peor or or, uh, Beth Baal Peor. Uh, You see, the the Canaanites had this idea of Baal, uh, one of the gods who was associated with fertility. Uh, both human fertility and also agricultural fertility. Uh, He was supposed to be the god who sent storms and rains. And that's a huge deal in that part of the world because people live on agriculture, but there isn't a whole lot of rain. So Baal is going to get a lot of attention. Uh, It's actually two syllables, Baal, but you run them together fast and they just sound like Baal. But this Baal character in Canaanite religion Uh, This fertility god, this storm god, who got worshipped in some really gruesome ways uh, involving sexual immorality, uh, cults, uh, cults of the dead, all kinds of things. He would get associated with certain locations, and Peor is one of them. There was a Baal of Peor that the Moabites and other neighboring nations revered. And what happens when Israel is encamped there at Baal Peor First, of course, the Moabites tried to get the sorcerer Balaam to come and curse them, and that didn't work. But then they figured out a better strategy and sent in their wives and daughters. And essentially, in Numbers chapter 25, invited the Israelite men to participate in the quote-unquote worship of Baal. 
And it's pretty gruesomely described, but the aftermath is even more gruesome. As the wrath of God is poured out and as, uh, as a line is drawn by Phineas the priest. It's an awful story of, of betraying the God of the covenant right on the banks of the Jordan River under the shadow of Peor. It nearly derailed the whole thing and there had to be a whole cleansing and there was a war of retaliation in Numbers chapter 31. And that's all what Moses is referring to when he says, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. This isn't far removed from their memory or from their location. It happened right where they are now as they're listening to him. Hey, remember a couple of months ago when we lost thousands and thousands of people to this grotesque temptation that joined people to a to a fertility cult and how God struck them down and how we had to go through all of this turmoil and, and cleansing. Moses says that's an illustration of what's going to happen when you go over. You want to stay alive? You want to not be swallowed up by the Canaanites and their culture? More importantly, do you not want to be disciplined and purified by the Lord painfully and even sometimes deadly? Discipline. Keep the commandments. They will guard your life. They will enable you to live long in the land, as Moses will say later in this chapter. Because the Israelites' lives are going to depend on obeying the Lord, Moses says, you must not add to the commandments or subtract from the commandments. If these commandments are what will keep you devoted to God, safe from idolatry, and therefore safe from his vengeance, it is crucial that you keep straight what God actually commanded versus what he didn't. You see, if you take God's commandments and you add to them, now you get a bunch of man-made rules thrown in the mix. And not only do you have people's consciences burdened, but you have confusion, uncertainty as to what God actually requires. But if you skip any of them, you are in danger deadly danger. And so Moses says, if you take this seriously, that obedience to the Lord will guard your life, then you should be very careful about not missing any of those jots and tittles, as Jesus would say, but also about not inventing your own rules. Don't add or subtract. And that don't add or subtract idea, because the word of God is unlike the word of man, carries through the scriptures, not just through Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, but all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. If anyone adds to the words of the prophecy of this book, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city. So we are to rigorously guard understand and do the commandments of God because they'll save your life they will guard you from your spiritual adversaries and they will guard you from the discipline that you might have to receive from a jealous God The second line of argument Moses has to get us ready for obedience to the commandments he's going to rehearse, starting in chapter 5, is that we, the people of God, should obey his commandments because they're a privilege. Verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, once again, Moses says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, so I'm just telling you what I heard, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
Same thing as verse 1, pretty much. But then verse 6, 7, and 8 give you reasons. And these reasons have to do with what a great blessing and honor it is to have the law of God. First of all, this law will be your wisdom. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding, Moses says. If we are wise, we regard the Lord's rules as more weighty than our own judgments. We will not try to be wise in our own eyes or take our moral guidance from culture. We'll let God define what is right and wrong and what matters for us, rather than movie stars, politicians, athletes, or TikTok influencers. We will look at what God has commanded, and rather than saying, oh, that's outdated, that's unrealistic, that's unhelpful, which is our fleshly reaction all too often to the commandments of the Bible, instead, our attitude will be that of the psalmist. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. They are your wisdom and your understanding. Not the, oh, you poor backward person still listening to 4,000-year-old moral rules. They are not outdated. They are not unrealistic. They are not unhelpful. They are your wisdom and your understanding. When every other philosophy and moral code and religion and teacher perishes, you still have the abiding word of God. In his commandments, showing you what is perfect and sweet and enlightening, and everything else the psalmist said. It's folly to imagine that we don't need the commands of God. So wisdom is one of the great things about God's commandments. Kids, you memorize the Ten Commandments, you'll be wiser than you were before you did. The second one, though, is honor. Verse 6 goes on, Keep them and do them, that will be your wisdom and your understanding In the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. It'll be recognized and honored by others. In other words, God's commandments about how to live our lives will eventually receive the attention and respect of the world around us. They are not ultimately a source of shame or embarrassment. That makes me weird to have to care about what God says. Now, I recognize that it probably doesn't seem like that right now. I recognize that if you're keeping God's rules about how to talk, how to live, how to spend your time, how to have relationships, how to deal with people who've offended you, all those things, if you're doing God's commandments, the world probably won't act impressed. And so keep in mind that this will be more obvious at the end of the age. You get a preview of this in things like the Queen of Sheba coming in, marveling at the wisdom of Solomon, marveling that God had spoken through him. Or Daniel, he he receives the marvel of the Babylonians, right? But Isaiah chapter 2 describes how the law of God will finally be seen 
for its truth and its wisdom and its glory by all the nations at the end. It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nation shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Someday the world will come to its senses, and you will be rightly honored, and God's wisdom will be rightly respected. You see little bits of this now as the nations start to come in. So, commandment-keeping is a source of wisdom. Commandment-keeping is a source of eventual honor. Another reason why obeying God's commandments uh, should be counted a privilege is because of the rhetorical question that verse 7 asks. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So a rhetorical question is one that you don't actually expect an answer to. It's rather a question that's supposed to challenge you to think, wow, that's really rare. That's really surprising. That's really precious. Isn't it amazing that there's a nation, namely Israel, that actually has a real God, a living God, who is near to them and listens to them when they call upon him? And because of that great and amazing privilege that's different from every other nation and every other religion, ought we not then to be eager to obey God's commandments? That's the train of thought here. I mean, really, who cares about the commands of a God who's not looking or who isn't fair or who doesn't love you? Like the Baals who wanted you to cut yourself and dance before them as in the showdown with Elijah. No, we have a good and a loving and ever near God who listens to us when we cry out. Therefore, isn't it wonderful that we get to hear his words and do his commandments? And then you get another argument, another privilege in verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Uh, If you look at the whims of demonically inspired, man-made gods. And you compare them to the moral purity and perfection, the wholesomeness, the soul-reviving nature of the law of God, you will see the difference. The commandments of your God, O Israel, are not wicked commandments. They are not irrational commandments. They are not impossible commandments. No, they are righteous commandments. God has a righteous character and he is teaching you to be a righteous people. And if you obey his commandments, you will enjoy a righteous lifestyle that is healthy and that is wholesome. The New Testament speaks similarly. When you read in 1 John 5, that this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, it's certainly true we sometimes make God's commandments burdensome. Sometimes we resent them. Or sometimes, in our legalistic pride, we you know, sort of make them our, uh, our, our bane or our master. You, know, you think about how the, 
the older brother in the prodigal son parable, he totally misunderstood his father and counted his will as a kind of oppressive thing that he had to toil under. You can make the commandments of Jesus burdensome, but they're actually meant to bless you. They make sense. They're righteous. We often chafe at God's commands. But if you've ever actually tried loving your enemies and telling the truth and keeping the Sabbath and all those sorts of things, then you probably understand God's commandments didn't really harm you, did they? They actually blessed you. No, when we chafe at the commandments of God, it's not because I know a more blessed, life-giving way to live, a more righteous way to live. No, it's just I don't want it and I shouldn't have to. Our flesh is not interested in lives that are peaceful and fruitful and generous, which God's law prescribes. God's law outlines a kind of life that has integrity and that is oriented towards worship. And by nature, that's not who we are. Don't let our own fleshly resistance change the definition of God's law from being a righteous blessing, a wise blessing, a nearness to him privilege into some kind of awful burden. It's not. So people of God obey his commandments because they'll save your life, because they're a privilege, and lastly, because they are his in verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, we hear a phrase from Moses that we're going to hear a few more times in this chapter. Uh, Take care and keep your soul or guard yourself and do it diligently. Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. Now this is interesting because when you think about it, the people hearing Moses preach this were either little kids when they were at Mount Sinai or they've been born since the days of Mount Sinai. And therefore, Moses expects the Sinai experience to have an intergenerational impact on Israel. Just as our salvation in Christ has an intergenerational, ongoing impact on us. And we could be told, don't forget the cross. Don't forget the empty tomb. Don't forget the outpoured spirit at Pentecost. So too, these people are being told, don't forget Mount Sinai and what you learned there. So, one thing you learn about the God that we are speaking of here, the theology of why we need to obey, is this is a God not to be forgotten, according to verses 9 and 10. God made this impressive display at Mount Sinai. He made this a crucial moment, a hinge in the story of salvation from Egypt to the Promised Land. He did all of the fire and the smoke and the gloom and the loud voice and the trumpet. He did all that. Why? Verse 10 that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. This is a God not to be forgotten. This is a God who is glorious and awesome. Verse 11 reminds you of what you saw if you were there, what you can imagine if you've heard about it. You came near, you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. You know, some kind, of, some kind of brilliant light or fire, shining smoke connecting the, the heavens and the earth. 
Um, people wonder if this is supposed to be a volcano, but I think it's supposed to be something supernatural here. Uh, a mountain burned with fire into the heart of heaven. It was wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. That's the language of, of theophany, of God making the, the earth shake and, and the earth turn dark in his appearing. This was all supernatural. And again, it was to make an impact on his people so that they would listen and learn and remember. This was a God who actually got involved in our history, who actually brought us to Sinai and spoke. And the next thing about God that Moses says should, should make you obedient to his words is that he's not a God of sight, but of sound. He says, you saw no form, verse 12. There were only words, only a voice. Now he'll develop that idea in the next paragraph as he starts talking about why not to make graven images. But for now, the point is, why do you listen to the spoken word of God? Thou shalt this, thou shalt not that. Because God speaks through words. He communicates himself audibly, not through pictures and statutes and liturgical dance or whatever else. He communicates himself verbally. This is the core idea of the second commandment, that God reserves the right to reveal himself how he will. We don't make up revelation. You saw no pictures, so don't try to make any pictures. God spoke. If that's what he chose, out of all the senses he could have intervened with, if he spoke so that you would hear, therefore you need to treasure the words that he said. God's prerogative to reveal himself would reserve all kinds uh, of of foolishness, right? It would rule out all kinds of idolatry and, and, and artwork of a religious nature until, until God chose to make his word, his living word incarnate and complete his revelation. This is a God of spoken words and communication, not of uh, quivery feelings. Not of movies and paintings and slideshows and statues. Because of, see, this is Moses' argument. Because of the kind of God this is, a speaking God, an invisible God, that determines how you treat the words that he speaks. And one more thing about this God that we need to note in verse 13 here. This is a God, not only a a God who, who makes an impact and a God who shows his holiness and a, a God who communicates verbally, not pictorially, but he's also a God of the covenants, verse 13. He declared to you his covenant. Now Moses goes on to say that covenant he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. Now that's kind of shorthand. The Ten Commandments are not by themselves the entire covenants, not the entire relationship or the entire treaty even that ratifies the relationship. But they're the core of the covenant. They are the focus of what's happening in this administration of the covenant, right? We have the, the covenant God made with Abraham and the, and the patriarchs. We have the, the, the installation, you might say, the, the building on that with this covenant at Sinai through Moses. And later on, we'll have the Davidic covenant and finally the new covenant in Jesus Christ. But just because this version of the covenant God and Israel at Sinai 
just because it is so focused on the commandments, it enshrines the commandments. It's all based on the commandments. It's all about obeying commandments. I regret to say that some Christians have misunderstood this covenant relationship as one of legalistic works righteousness. Israel is entering a phase of her relationship with God in which it is crucial for her to obey and fulfill her holy purpose, but she didn't get into that relationship by obeying. She didn't become the offspring of Abraham by obeying. She didn't earn the land the Lord is giving you to possess by obeying. Obedience, yes, is the dominant focus in the Sinai Covenant. The Sinai Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. It's a relationship still. It's a God is near to us and we have enormous privileges still. It is not a works righteousness. Here's what I did. Now pay what you owe or punish me for what I deserve kind of relationship. Lord willing, we'll talk about this more in the coming paragraphs of chapter 4. But I want to remind you of this here when Moses says he declared to you his covenant, his formalized relationship, his treaty. He declared to you this covenant and he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. Because performing the Ten Commandments is the focus here, but that's not how we got into this relationship. We got into this relationship through God's gracious promises to Abraham and the law which came 430 years later cannot annul the promise. It can only build on it. Cannot annul the promise of salvation by grace through faith. That's Paul's point in Galatians. The covenant at Sinai does not undo the fundamental graciousness of God saying, come out from the world, be my people, receive my promises, not for anything that you've done, but because of what I will make you and what I will do for you, ultimately through Jesus Christ, the last seed of Abraham. All those promises, and now here, this possession, this is all by grace. You know, we keep saying this evening, people of God obey His commandments. People of God obey His commandments. Well, how did you get to be the people of God? It was by grace through your fathers, and even here at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, it was by the sprinkled blood of sacrifice that this covenant was confirmed. Sinners entered into a relationship with a holy God. That happened through mediation and through promise and through sacrifice and through blood. All of it consistent with God's dealings with Abraham and later on through Jesus Christ. The mediator of a new covenant. Do not misunderstand, please, what is happening with all the obedience emphasis in Deuteronomy 4. And do not think that somehow this is fundamentally different from the fact that God relates to you. He relates to you through Jesus Christ. He has redeemed you out of your slavery, made precious promises that you never deserved, brought you into a relationship that you did not earn. At least I hope He has. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe I shouldn't say that. But if your faith is in Christ, God has given you a covenant relationship mediated by Jesus the new covenant of grace. And then the same thing follows as followed back here. And now, 
O Israel. And now, O Israel, what will you do with the commandments? You know, Jesus gave plenty of them. Not to harm you, but to bless you. Not to re-enslave you to the standard of works righteousness, but because you're already in a relationship of grace by which he's redeemed you. Now, in this relationship, in this covenant that you have through Christ, are you willing to obey him? He has just as much majesty and authority as we hopefully saw this morning as God exhibited at Mount Sinai with all that fire and smoke. Jesus Christ gives us relational reasons to obey too. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments in John 14. And his commandments are not burdensome. In fact, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christ offers you great blessings and inheritance, analogous to what Israel is receiving in our passage. And Jesus Christ paid the blood price to establish the covenant with us, just as there was the blood of sacrifice that ratified God's covenant with Israel. Jesus Christ has revealed glory and grace, just as surely as God in Israel revealed glory and grace. And so now, Christian believer, you need to be willing to hear the word of God. And now, Obey the Lord's commandments. Obey them because they'll safeguard your life. Obey them because they're a great privilege. And obey them because they're his. Because of whose they are. Your covenant gods. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who are we that you should choose and favor us? that you should make atonement for our sins, that you should wake us up from death and call us into a relationship with yourself. Oh, Father, we should be the last people to chafe at and resent your commandments. Subdue our hearts and help us to call them wise and good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.